Good morning, church. Take your Bibles and let's go to Revelation 13. Lord Jesus, we pray that you now, by your Holy Spirit, might make evident and plain what this really important text says to us. We need wisdom. We need endurance. We need faith. None of this can come from ourselves. We need you right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to provide it. Do battle, we pray, Holy Spirit. In this very moment, the devil and his forces do not want this word to go forth. The devil wants us distracted, discouraged, disillusioned, disobedient, and today we press in, we say no, not today, not this way, we will receive the inspired word of God. So help us, open our eyes that we might see. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's where Revelation 12 ended. If you were here last week, our sermon concluded with those words, and I told you if you want to see what happens next, you have to come back. Welcome to Revelation 13 and the account of the two beasts. Standing on the shore of the sea was who? Do you remember? It was a great seven-headed red dragon, a symbol of Satan, described with four important words, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. Satan had been thrown out of heaven. He attempted to devour the child. And when that plan was thwarted, he pursued the woman, a figure of Mary and Israel and all of the people of God. And when that plan failed, Revelation 12, 17 says that he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those, listen, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, that's you. This seven-headed red dragon is standing on the sand of the sea and he is strategizing. What's his next move? What follows in Revelation 13 is the symbolic portrayal of the devil's game plan. The plan to wage warfare on the offspring of the woman to continue his cosmic battle. And this week we're gonna take that battle, we're gonna bring it closer to home. Maybe because of our time in the word last week you were more aware, I hope so, of the devil's assaults in your life. Well, we're gonna get it even a little more clearly because this text has this point that Christians need to embrace faithfulness and wisdom against the devil's strategies. So if there's a cosmic battle that's happening, then the question is what do you do? What do you do, Christian? What do you do? You have to embrace faithfulness. You have to embrace wisdom because the devil has a plan 
He has a strategy for your ruin. We see this in the text in two places. We see a beast in chapter 13 in verse one, rising out of the sea, and then we see in verse 10, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. We see a second beast rising in chapter 13 in verse 11, another beast rising out of the earth, and then we see the conclusion, this calls for wisdom. There it is, faithful endurance and wisdom. So you you can think of today's message trying to answer two questions. Question one, what is Satan doing? Question number two, what should I do? What, What is Satan doing? And what am I doing? And so I'm gonna use those two questions as the framework to examine the two beasts and the two callings of Christians. First, the two beasts. What is Satan's strategy? What's Satan's strategy? What is he doing? Revelation 13 shows us one aspect of Satan's strategy and it relates to two areas of dominion two areas of authority. You you can think of this like offense and defense. These are different plays, but the goal is the same, and these two beasts are representative of how Satan operates now and in the future. They represent his game plan, but they also represent two real individuals. They represent other things, but they represent two individuals. So let's start with an overview. There are two beasts. One is from the sea, the other is from the earth. Beyond the fact that they represent people, individual people, two people, what do they represent in general? Well, let me ask you a question. You fill in the blank. At a family reunion, it's best not to discuss two subjects. What are they? Politics and religion. There you go. Politics and religion. That's what these two beasts relate to. The first beast relates to the way in which the devil uses the authority of governments or government and power to do his bidding. The second beast shows us the way that the devil uses religion to his advantage. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that politics and religion are inherently evil. We need many Christians in the political realm and we need many Christians in the religious realm. But here's the thing, you have to know how to operate in that realm because these realms are so filled with the possibility of great good and the possibility of great evil. The good use of authority expressed in good government and in good religion is a great blessing from God. Remember the child in Revelation 12? He's described in political power language. Verse five, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Christian, I wanna remind you, you have a king who's also a priest and a prophet. And what we see in Jesus is the beautiful merger of religion and politics in one person, the king of kings and lord of lords. And yet, like so many things in life, the enemy loves to take that which is good and to use it wickedly for his purposes. 
And so his strategy is to conquer or subvert the faith of God's people. He uses a strategy that one author says will either deflect their obedience or falsify their witness. He will frighten them into disobedience or he will deceive them into an illusion. This is really important. The enemy will use force or deception in his strategy to defeat the people of God. So let's unpack this even further. The first beast, the sea beast, also known as the Antichrist. Notice that this beast, in verse one, he rises out of the sea. This this beast is the greater of the two, and in the Bible, the sea is associated with chaos and disorder and mysterious threats and danger, and you can imagine why. During the time that the Bible was written, there were no scuba divers. There were no exploring the depths of the ocean. When a ship sank, it never was seen again. The sea is vast. It's threatening. A storm can create massive waves. And for those of you who don't like swimming in the ocean, you never know what's under the water. (laughs) My wife would be one of those. She loves the ocean on a paddleboard, right? So you're up, you can enjoy it. It's a biblical fear, if you have that fear. (laughs) Revelation 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So everything that the sea represents will be gone, and this beast comes out of the sea. Notice the description. He has ten horns with seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. 10 horns and seven heads. Does that sound familiar? It should because the great red dragon had seven heads with 10 horns. So the difference though is that now the crowns aren't on the head, or the heads rather, the crowns are now on the thorns and or the horns rather, and there are blasphemous names written on the heads of this beast. So what's happening here is that this symbol is connecting this sea beast to the image of the great red dragon. It's also connecting it to the blasphemous figure in Daniel chapter seven. These blasphemous names written on the head of this beast are names that communicate grandeur and authority, but they're the kind of terms or names only reserved for God. The beast uses names like Savior, Infinite, Majestic, Powerful, the Messiah, I can save you. And those are names reserved for the true Savior, the true Majestic One, the true Messiah. The beast then will receive worship from people and it won't be accidental. The beast will lead and talk in a way designed to make people worship him. He'll talk with grandiose language and make people to be convinced that he's almost otherworldly. In verse two, we see that the beast is a patchwork of former kingdoms. The beast 
I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth. This imagery comes right out of Daniel 7, and it makes it clear that what, what John is seeing here is a leader who is associated with earthly kingdoms. These, these leopards and bears and lions in the Old Testament were connected to actual earthly kingdoms. But the challenge is it's not just an earthly kingdom that's in mind. There's demonic power behind it. Look at the text. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Notice those three words, power, throne, and authority. They're meant to emphasize the real power that's behind this ruler, the real power that's behind this expression of the ruler in the man-made kingdom and the man-made government. You may have heard follow the money when describing a political scandal. Well, Revelation 13 would say follow the power because behind this earthly power applied through earthly governments is the devil himself when that power is used to do battle against the kingdom of God. So John is trying to help us see something here writing to real people in real churches, dealing with real threats from a real government, that the threat that they feel is not just governmental, but it's governmental combined with demonic forces that are using those people and those systems to do evil bidding. Verse three tells us more. One of the heads was wounded and healed. This is a bit mysterious. Commentators are a little bit lost as to what this means. It's some kind of, it would appear false representation of the resurrection. Perhaps it's a leader who people thought was dead and actually reemerges and people can't believe it. Or someone who faked their death and now is alive. Or somebody who was sort of out and defeated that suddenly now is brought back to center stage. We're not sure. But what's clear is there's this wound and then it's healed. What is clear, though, is that the beast is worshipped. Look at 3b. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. <laughs> what happens here is this leader, this antichrist, this political leader, amazes people. And how does he do that? Well, he does that like every leader does. He's attractive and compelling and successful and inspiring. And verse 4 tells us that the people worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, notice this, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Notice the power language. They love the beast, why? Because who's like the beast? No one's like the beast and everybody wants to be on the side of the person who no one else is like and who no one else can stop. Mark it down somewhere, please, fellow believer in your mind. Human beings love what power gives them, and they love those who provide it. Human beings, we, we love power, and we love those who provide it. And so often, the seeds of hero worship in the history of mankind are sown in the soil of fear and discontentment. And we need somebody to save us. 
Who is like this person? And who can stand against him? Verses five through eight tells us what this antichrist sea beast does. It's wicked, it's frightening, and yet it's not one that's outside of God's sovereign control. When I read this ver- these verses, five to eight, hear the words given and allowed. All of this is part of God's plan, so this is a fearful text at times. I wanna be sure that you feel what John intends for you to feel in this, but don't want you to despair. It's not as though God is absent. He's right in the middle of all of this. Look at verse five. And the beast was given, there it is, a mouth uttering haughty, blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling and those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name, notice this, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That is an encouragement to those of you who are Christians because your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. And that means that your security is not that life is going to be better, it is that your security is on page 353, fifth column, there's my name, Jesus bought me and loved me. What happens here is that the beast reveals his true agenda. He, he uses his power in a manner that makes it seem like he views himself as a god. He makes war against the saints. He secures the entire world's support in this endeavor. And the beast creates by his power and earthly authority a divide between God's people and Satan's people. And the result is the entire world turns against the followers of Jesus. It's a dark picture, isn't it? And yet it's not without hope. We'll come back to verses nine and 10. I'm gonna skip them and come back to them in a moment. But what I want you to see and note here and feel is the way in which this antichrist figure is empowered by the devil, celebrated by the masses, and effective in his persecution. This vision church is dark on purpose. Why? Eugene Peterson offers this wise Explanation. Jesus must fortify his people to face the worst. In a political world of sea beast violence, he must bring into the open what may be ahead for any of them. Exile, death, persecution, torture. Listen carefully. He knows that when named, fears lose half their potency. He will make sure that no disaster inflicted by the evil power will be unheard of in its congregations. Knowing what to expect, they will at least not be surprised into cowardice. Listen, Revelation is in the Bible so that you can stop being surprised when life is hard. Revelation is in the Bible so you can stop spending emotional energy being shocked that the world and its systems are stacked against you. This is here 
so you won't be surprised how frightening life can be. That's why this is here. Second beast. It gets worse. Just kidding. It gets, it gets better. No, it gets worse. It does get worse. <laughs> but it's going to get better, okay? The second beast is called often the false prophet. And he rises, notice, in verse 11, not out of the sea, but where? Out of the earth. That's significant. This threat is more subtle. It's more familiar. It's more common. Notice, according to verse 11, this earth beast has two horns like a lamb. Do you remember the lamb? We saw a lamb before. We saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, and he was honored and worshiped, and the whole world fell down before him. This is another kind of lamb, but notice when he speaks, he speaks like a dragon. The symbolism is intentional. There, there are religious overtones here designed to resemble the lamb that pictured Christ. Now we have a fake Christ, a false prophet. The sea beast was about power and persecution, but the land beast is about religion and deception. That's why he's often called the false prophet. Look at verses 12 to 14. We learn a number of things about this person. First, he has all the authority of the first beast when he is in his presence. Secondly, he persuades the world to worship the beast. Third, he performs miraculous signs in order to convince people of his legitimacy. And fourth, he's an expert in the dark arts of deception. The sea beast uses power and force. The land beast uses spirituality and religion and belief as a backdoor power move in order to advance the Antichrist's agenda. There's even some kind of image of the beast in verse 15 that's strikingly similar to what we know happened in the book of Daniel with the image of Nebuchadnezzar and the command for people to fall down and pray to it and worship it. And so we find here this battleground that's taking place for the hearts and minds of people. What do they love? What do they worship? What do they believe? I just want to remind you, military might is powerful. That's true. So is propaganda. You can subdue people with fear, but you can also subjugate them with falsehoods. Do you feel this? This is real world stuff. And I know your mind is like going all over the place. That's what the text is designed to do. It's, it's meant to make you realize, man, this, this sounds like the world in which I live. The signature act on the part of the false prophet is the global acceptance of the beast. We have this unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And this global acceptance of the beast emerges in the mark of the beast. Look at verses 16 and 17. 
It causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So we, we get a sense of the breadth and the significance of this mark. The whole world, that, that's why there's so many descriptors. Again, the text says small, great, rich, poor, slave, free, but it's everyone. And we also get the sense of the significance of it to buy and sell. If you can't buy and sell, it's very difficult to survive. The whole system of the accumulation of life's necessities is shot to pieces as the beast controls all of that and the false prophet facilitates that control. Remember another mark? In chapter seven, God's people had a mark. They had a seal on their foreheads. In chapter 14, we're gonna see that again. And so what we see here is another example of a counterfeit marking, a counterfeit picture. Here in, here's again an anti-God seal that creates an identification with the beast and with Satan's agenda. Now you might wonder, well, what does that look like? Is that microchips in our hands? Is that an iPhone? I mean, if that's it, we're all in trouble, right? <laughs> I have no idea what that is. I don't. But I do know what the point of the mark is. The point of the mark is that it's the mark of man, not the mark of God. That's what the text makes very clear. It's part of the anti-God association embedded in Satan's strategy. Later on in the text, you'd see that the beast and the number 666 are counterfeits to Jesus and God's kingdom, which would be represented by the perfect number 777. It's just close enough, but one off. That's the point. Now, listen, throughout my lifetime, I've heard lots of sermons and charts and everything else in the book of Revelation. I've heard a lot about what the mark of the beast could be, what to look for. But here's what strikes me. I've not heard enough about being sealed with the name of the Father. So while I don't know what the mark of the beast is, I do know what the mark of the Father is. I do know the name imprinted. So it would seem to me that one of the strategies that Christians ought to employ, one of the best ways to recognize the Antichrist and the false prophet, one of the best ways to understand what the mark of the beast might be is to know what the mark of God is and who Jesus is and what his word says. The best way to not be deceived by the false prophet is to flood our minds with hearts, our minds and hearts with the prophetic word from our risen king. The best way to avoid the mark of the beast is to fully embrace the mark of Jesus. Because it might just be that over time, Christians, because they're so saturated with who Jesus is and what the Bible says, they hear a teaching or they see a person or they see a power move and they go, hmm, something's not right with that. What is Satan's strategy as he stands on the sea? His strategy 
two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. He uses two covert realities. He uses power and he uses belief. He uses two institutions, government and he uses religion. So then the question is, okay, so what is our strategy then? Assuming that you're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus is your king, that you've repented of your sins, you've turned to Jesus, if that's who you are, listen carefully. If that's not who you are, your first step needs to be reckoning with the fact that right now you are in Satan's kingdom and he doesn't want you to leave. Even now, what I'm saying to you, the, the devil is working so hard to remove any thought, any conviction, any sense of, of, of desire to change because the enemy wants to keep you in his clutches, not because he loves you, because he hates God and he wants to use you to hate God even more. And my appeal to you, if you're not yet a Christian, was do not remain in that condition one more moment. Come to Jesus today. And to those of us who are followers of Jesus, Here's the playbook. John records this vision in order to strengthen the church. He's, he's writing, let me remind you, he's writing to real congregations, just like ours, who live in real cities, with real families, with real governments, with real religious beliefs. This is not fanciful mythology, this is real. Is the Antichrist alive right now? Is the mark of the beast already in our culture? Is the false prophet already on TikTok or Twitter? <laughs> I don't know. Here's what I do know. Go back to verse nine. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We heard that from the first chapters two, three, and four, or chapters two and three, rather, the letters to the seven churches. Then the text says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword he must be slain. This is a strange statement. It's a loose translation of something from the book of Jeremiah, and it's designed to emphasize the certainty of pressure and pain associated with persecution. It, it basically says, those who are to be exiled, they're gonna be exiled. And those who are gonna be slain, they're gonna be slain. And yet notice what he says. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's all intentional. And we learn our first strategy, which is faithful endurance. Say that out loud to me right now, faithful endurance. This isn't boring. This isn't old school. This isn't pacifism. This is what Christians throughout the history of the church have done when all hell broke loose in their culture and the government and propaganda fell on everybody. They had to go somewhere. They had to think, what are we going to do? And faithful endurance is the calling. Why faithful endurance? What does this mean? Well, it means first, faithful, it's a call to believe. You see, when, when persecution hits, it's easy to fall into despair or to fall into disobedience. When the pressure's on, there's lots of temptations to do things that later on in life you're gonna regret. 
You see what happens, hardship tends to reveal our expectations of what it meant to follow Jesus. And for many of us, captivity, exile, persecution, hardship, if we're honest, that's not what we signed up for. We signed up for heaven and the abundant life and my sins forgiven and joy and peace. And all of that's true, but it's not complete. This text shows us the calling to fortify our faith. It's a reminder, it's a really helpful reminder to be sure we know what kingdom we're living for. What king really deserves our allegiance and who really defines obedience for us. It's a call to believe, to have faith, to confess again and again and again and again, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, he's my king. No one like the Lord, no one like the Lord. While the world is saying, who is like the beast? We say, no, who's like the Lord? With so many deceiving voices in the world even now, it is really important for you to hear the voice of your great shepherd. It's also a call for endurance, endurance. Another word for this is patient steadfastness. Patience, steadfastness. In other words, believe and be careful. Believe and choose your words carefully. Believe and absorb. Believe and wait on the Lord. The reason why this is important is there is a real temptation for the followers of Jesus to begin to use the same tools of the trade as the beast in fighting the beast. We can trade physical violence for physical violence. We can trade verbal violence for verbal violence. We can hear what someone says from the opposition and we fight back and our words sound exactly like their words. Because we think, that's how you win in our culture. Right, and that's how you lose the overall kingdom battle. And if you're like, well, that's not gonna work. My question is, did it work for Jesus? I'm not calling for some sort of blanket pacifism, but I am cautioning you about what I feel in my own soul. When I feel threatened or I feel mistreated, I am tempted to hit back hard. Faithful endurance. Again, Eugene Peterson. We live in a world of violence. Rather, sorry, when we live in a world of violence long enough, it is easy to adopt violent means ourselves, especially when we know that our cause is righteous and the opposition is evil. Killing the opposition is the beast's way of solving its problems. It is not ours. Ours is endurance and faith. I'm not necessarily worried about you going out and murdering somebody. I am worried, though, honestly, about your words, your tone, and your posture. Be careful, church. Let patient endurance, as hard as it is, and let faith Mark the people of God, especially when we are staring the spirit of the Antichrist right in the face. That's when this matters. That's why this is in the Bible. Secondly, 
There's a need for wisdom. Look at verse 18. That's what it says. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast for its number, it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Why, why wisdom? Because here's the thing. The nature of deception and propaganda is you don't realize that it's deception and propaganda. That's the nature of it. It's like self-deception. How do you, how are you gonna know that you're self-deceived? You're self-deceived even about your self-deception. That's, that's the challenge, the lies. They seem so believable. The masses are buying into this narrative and the culture around you is changing and you don't even realize how it's affecting you and so many people begin to believe something that it's hard not to join in with them. And so the caution here is don't lose your head. Be saturated with the scriptures and aware of what's happening around you. In our present culture, you, have, you and I have access to more information than any Christians in the history of mankind. Just in the 20th century alone, I read this this week, the communication data flow has increased in the 20th century by a factor of 10 million. And data transmission, like the flow of information, like our banking, our checking, like all that stuff, how we get news, has increased at a factor of 10 billion. In other words, all week long, you can scroll through your social media, read your news feeds, on the palm of your hand, in a computer, trying to figure out what's going on, 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 and neglect what's really going on. You need to remind yourself, uh, not inspired, not inspired, not inspired, not inspired, not inspired, not inspired, inspired! <laughs> we need to ask God for wisdom. We need to apply our hearts to wisdom. We need to help one another be wise. And in order to do that, you have to know the Bible. This is a dangerous time to not being saturated with the scriptures. Why is this in the Bible? It's so that you can pay attention to the man behind the curtain. It's the reminder that there's hope right now, that this is in the Bible to take our fears and cut their potency in half by naming them, and it's an invitation for you and me who are followers of Jesus to be faithful, in our endurance, to play the long game, and to be wise in our generation. The Apostle John, 10 years before receiving the Revelation vision, wrote these words in 1 John chapter four. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world and by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And all God's people said, Amen. they are from the world. They speak from the world. The world listens to them. We are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let us be faithful and let us be wise against the devil's strategies right now in our generation. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith because it's needed and give us wisdom because we can't receive it on our own. Lord, this text, it is so heavy. It's heavy because what we see in the scriptures are, are so, is, is so poignant and symbolic. It draws us in and it's also heavy because we, we can smell the aroma of this around us and even in us. So help us today to wage warfare against our enemy, not by being proud or cavalier, but by being faithful, but by enduring, but by being wise. Church, in a moment, we're gonna sing together. We're going to confess our allegiance again to Christ. And as we prepare to sing, can I just remind you of the battle that you're in and of the myriad forces that do not want for you to be encouraged or exhorted or to be strengthened. And would you just allow right now, Christian, the filling of the Spirit to strengthen you because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. So come now, Holy Spirit, help us. Seal us again, we pray, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.